0: Let's begin in a word of prayer, once again, preparing our hearts and our minds to receive God's Word. Father, we do praise You again, as we see over and over in this book of Revelation, the offering of praise almost every heavenly scene that we've looked at so far, and just about every one that we'll look at in the rest of the book. People are constantly, persistently, and preoccupied with worshiping you, and Lord, we want to learn that, and we want to live our lives in such a way that our lives are a worshipful experience before you. So even though we are looking at things that are horrendous and dreadful, and from our perspective almost seemingly out of proportion, we know that they are not, because we know that uh, you do everything perfectly and well. So these judgments that we will look at and we looked at last night, uh, help us to view them from your perspective and give you praise for them as the courses in the book of uh, Revelation do. And we want to commit our time and we desire to have our minds prepared and ready and that you might give us alertness today. We have a long day and that you might energize us as we begin to get tired or weary or whatever the case may be. So we just ask for your enablement today to understand your word as clearly and as pointedly as you want us to understand it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, we will look at session 15, and we will spend all of our time looking at an interlude. It's a break from kind of the sequence of events. Most of the interludes take place in a heavenly scene. We've already looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3, the vision of Jesus Christ among the seven churches, where we have a lot of introductory material to set the stage for these future events, particularly the vision itself. We'll revisit that vision because John will have that vision again in chapter 19, and it's the same personage, and the imagery that he uses in chapter 19 was very similar to the vision that we saw in chapter 1. That vision also is used as introduction to each of the letters to the seven churches, and we see little snippets of the Lord Jesus Christ in different images throughout the book. So that kind of sets the stage and tells us this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, as the very first few words of the book indicate to us. We've been looking at the tribulation from Jesus Christ. It's from him. He's orchestrating it. He's behind the scenes. We have these little notes in there. It was given to him, such and such. It doesn't mention who is the one that is the giver, but we can assume that it's at least either the Father or Jesus Christ or both. So the tribulations are from Him. This is the bulk of the book, chapters 4 through 18. So the bulk of the book deals with tribulation in terms of people's experience. From God's perspective, it's God judging, sending judgments on the earth because He's beginning to wind down history. The book of Revelation gives us the end of history, the end of God's plan for all things. And before he can consummate the final intentions, he must wipe out evil. And that's a major theme of this book. So, chapters 4 through 18 is this horrendous process. From our perspective, it seems horrendous. From God's perspective, it is righteous, it is pure. It is truthful, it is omniscient, it is wise, and it is necessary. We've also seen the little word, these things must take place. In other words, they're part of a necessary plan of the righteous work of God. So from our perspective, they seem drastic and horrendous, but from God's perspective, they're necessary. So this is the bulk of the book. So we're going to spend a lot of time. We won't complete it this morning. In fact, My goal today, after our three blocks of time, is to get to chapter 18. And we'll leave the third division for tomorrow and Monday. You didn't think I was going to finish, did you? We're still early, too, right? (laughs) We looked at uh, chapters 4 through 7, and I've tried to capture the essence of that in the little wording 7 sealed scroll. Everything seems to be related to the scroll. Last night we began this next subdivision that I call the trumpet judgments, chapters 8 through 11, and we looked at the judgments in chapters 8 and 9, at least the first six trumpet judgments today, and this morning I would like to get through chapter 11, which is a break or an interlude. Dividing that into sections, that division, the trumpet judgments division, this is all on your outline sheet. We were introduced to the trumpet judgments with the seventh seal, which is composed of the seven trumpets, that's verses 1 through 5, and then the rest of chapter 8 deals with the first four trumpet judgments. These are judgments primarily geophysical, it seems like, on a third of the earth. The fifth trumpet seemed to be a demonic invasion that tormented men five months. The sixth trumpet judgment was an army that comes out of the east crossing the Euphrates. And that army appears to be demon-possessed from the description. Little details that seem to indicate that it's an unusual. It's not a normal army. And that brings us to chapters 10 and 11, at least through verse 14. In chapter 11, after verse 14, we have the seventh trumpet. And that's why I will complete this portion, calling it the trumpet judgments, because it encompasses all of them. And then chapter 12 introduces us to another subdivision that we'll look at uh, sometime today. So let's take a look at this interlude. What's the purpose of these... In fact, this is kind of the purpose of most of these interludes, but particularly this one. Most of them are introduced in in kind of the narrative. Much of what we have in this part of the book is predictions of things that are going to happen on the earth. So these are events. These are things that God is going to orchestrate in the future in terms of bringing judgment on the earth. And then within these... Portions we saw in the first division, Uh, chapter 7 was an interlude. In other words, a break from the narrative, a break from the action on earth, where instead of chronicling things that are taking place chronologically or sequentially, it appears that these interludes go back and give us more information, more things concerning what's going on as these narrative portions are, are unfolding. So chapter 7 seemed to say, okay, now I'm going to give you a little picture. All of the judgments of the seals and preparatory for the seal judgments. There's other things that are going on along with them at the same time. And in chapter 7, it was the raising up of 144,000. And we had a positive note, and that's one of the most positive chapters in this whole section. There are not too many positive notes. We'll see another one in chapter 11. So 10 and 11, the first purpose is to emphasize the importance of the seventh trumpet. It separates it out by going back and just filling in things that will be taking place as these trumpet judgments unfold. So it serves to kind of emphasize the seventh trumpet judgment, what we'll, we'll, we'll get to at the end of chapter 11 you see how these things are fitting, at least structurally? I may not have nailed down the chronology of all of the events in the book, and I don't know of anyone that feels real confident that they have. I I guess some people would, but (laughs) there's a lot of problems trying to do the chronology. But what I'm giving you here is a clear structure that you can see and you can defend from the outline there. There's also an emphasis on the soon consummation. We'll see this in chapter 10. In fact, that's one of the emphases of chapter 10. These things, from our perspective, as we read, we see judgment, 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 judgment. When's it going to end? Well, we're assured that there's going to be a soon consummation. There is going to be an end to these judgments. God is going to finish what He began and And then he's going to consummate the rest of the things that he has in mind for for history. So a purpose of this interlude is to assure us of a soon consummation. And like all of the other interludes, it's going to fill in some of the gaps, give us a little bit more detail concerning things that take place at the same time. And in this case, it's going to give us a picture of two prophets that are going to be very, very important during the period of tribulation. Fourthly, particularly chapter 10 is going to focus in on Scripture, the importance of Scripture. In fact, the main application that we can draw from that passage, it's going to give us some insight, as the rest of the Scripture tells us, concerning the nature of Scripture. In fact, that's one way that you can draw out applications from chapter 10. And in fact, I'm going to use that as somewhat of an applicational overview of chapter 10. So there is a lot of material throughout the book of Revelation. I haven't given you all of them for the sake of time. When I taught this book to a church every Sunday that we were in the book, I would draw out applications. Some of these are some of the major ones that I'll share with you. So we're looking at an interlude. We have a little book. There's something about a little book in chapter 10, and it is introduced. The first part of it focuses in on an angel. So let's look at verse 1, and I saw another, we have lots of angels, we're going to see lots of them as we keep going, saw another strong angel, I guess there might be some weak ones, I don't know why, but at least this one's a strong one, coming down, and keep in mind and keep track of where we're at, this one is coming out of heaven, so John is seeing, and notice it's introduced much like all of the other visions that he has. Now he's seeing another vision, and I saw, Kai Adon, the Greek Edeo, introduces chapter 10. So he saw, the past tense idea, this is what he saw, now he's going to record it, or at least begin to. He's going to record portions until he's stopped in chapter 10. I saw another, which means another of the same kind. Commentators, oftentimes, a lot of these angels, they try to see Jesus Christ in a lot of these angels. And I think this is one of them that commentators interpret as Jesus Christ. But there's too many details. And in fact, all of the angels or the the occurrence of Angelos, I take it in a literal sense. I don't think there's enough Pieces of exegetical data to deviate in any of them. So, this is just another of the same kind. This is alos there. Uh, there's two words in Greek that give you the idea of another. Uh, heteros is a Greek word that has another of a different kind. This one is alos. Another of the same kind. In other words, another angel, just like all of the other angels that we've seen in the book of Revelation. And I saw another, this one is strong, however, strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. This is one of the reasons some people see Christ here. You see Christ coming with a cloud oftentimes. And the rainbow, we only saw the rainbow around the throne in chapter 4, so people use that as reason to believe that Christ is in view maybe and a rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun remember Jesus similarly described and his feet like pillars of fire so there's a lot of little pieces of information that they that some commentators will use to indicate that this may be Jesus Christ but I don't think that they're beyond what an angel could appear like so because it seems consistent I I take it to be just another angel And there's mighty angels throughout the book. They do all kinds of different functions. I'm going to focus on them when we get to chapter 14. And he had in his hand a little book. Now, in uh, the translations, when it translates little book, the word is very similar to the word that we looked at uh, when we were talking about a scroll. In fact, that word... Biblariadion here is the diminutive of Biblarion which was the scroll that we looked at in chapter 4 and chapter 5 so the words are related but in this case it's the diminutive or in other words a little book or a little scroll you could interpret it as well or translate it so he sees this angel with this little scroll there's our angel powerful. This is in contrast, in this interlude, we're going to see later on another personage, verse 7 of 11, when they had finished their testimony, the beast. There's a personage that comes out of the abyss. This angel comes out of heaven. In chapter 10, there's a creature that comes out of the abyss and that beast will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. I think it's a deliberate contrast. Uh, the details seem to contrast one another. So here we have a strong angel coming from heaven. And this angel has a little book. And it's a positive thing rather than a negative thing. book in his hand which was open. The little book was open and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, as the drawing there indicates on the slide. And he cried out with a loud voice when a lion roars. Remember, there's lots of noise in the book of Revelation. Here's another loud voice. In chapter 8, we saw the only place where we have silence, almost grabbing your attention. The silence uh, is in contrast to all of these references to loud voices and thunderings and lightning and everything else that is spectacular. Cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. So you have imagery. We don't have a uh, lion here. There's a little as. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. So some imagery here, just think in terms of thunder. I guess there's lightning there to indicate thunder on that little sketch or drawing. Now these seven peals of thunder in verse 4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, so these are audible, possibly recognizable words as thunder. So you have these booming, loud, verbal Sounds that are coming out of heaven. As usual, in verse 4, I was about to write. So John begins to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. That's interesting. In fact, that's unusual. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where John, rather than recording these visions that he continually has... Here is one portion, at least, of this vision that he is instructed not to write, which is interesting. So obviously the commentators are very curious and want to know what are these seven thunders, and they come up with all of these different ideas. I think this is one example where God has not revealed everything to us. We may have questions about them. We may wonder what is the content of these peals of thunder. Much like Daniel, a lot of what Daniel saw, God didn't let him reveal and put on paper or parchment or whatever Daniel used. Those were secret things that uh, God was not pleased to reveal. Now, in the book of Revelation, John is given a lot of visions that go beyond what Daniel revealed, and uh, John reveals them. But even here, we have an example of some things that God was not pleased to reveal. Well, let's draw a couple of applications from the passages we've already looked at. From the first three verses, there, one of the principles of the nature of Scripture. One of the things that we can draw from that, and if this is obviously, if this was the only place, then we wouldn't have a good foundation for this. But this is an illustration that all of Scripture is revelation, revelation. And if you ever preach this passage, that would be a point that I would emphasize, and then you can take people to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it speaks specifically of Paul and the apostles receiving revelation. One of the main things about Scripture and the uniqueness of Scripture, Scripture is, is of the nature that man could not come up with what we have. Paul didn't ultimately come up with Romans, for example. What Paul records in Romans is what God gave him by revelation. Maybe not dictation, but ultimately it's a revelation that God gave to Paul. Similar to Moses, the Ten Commandments, the law, this is all revelation. So we have lots of examples and overt statements of Scripture that Scripture is not from man's intellect. This is very, very important because the the world... The only source of knowledge that the world has is just whatever man can come up with, whether it be a philosopher or uh, some person that claims to be a wise person or a wise man or whatever. True knowledge, in fact, absolute truth, does not come from man. And what we're dealing with in Scripture is absolute truth. It must be revealed. And that's what we have here. John is given a series of visions and in uh, chapter 10, he sees these things. He writes them down until the angel or this voice stops him. So there's lots of insight. There's lots of information that God could reveal if he so chose. He's given us a revelation of those things that he desires us to know. Now, I love the book of Genesis and I like teaching through it and dealing with the issues in the book of Genesis. The early chapters, first 11 chapters, gives us just the bare minimum of what we need, basically. But it's all and it's adequate. There's all kinds of questions. You know, where did the, uh, the people after Adam get their wives? You know, the common question. That's the, the nature of those first 11 chapters. Lots of things that we would like to know. God has been pleased to just reveal that that we need to know. And that's true of all of Scripture. And here's an example where it gives us a sense that there's possibly, in fact, we know there's lots more that God has not revealed. And the nature of Scripture in itself as progressive revelation has occurred, we see we have in the New Testament era a lot more revelation than the people in the Old Testament because God revealed all of the New Testament to the writers of the New Testament. So that's a point you can stress at this point. So we have an angel, verses 1 through 3. This angel makes an announcement beginning in verse 4. And I read that already. And when the angel, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal it up. Seal up, which the seven things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Now, there's another principle that we can draw from there. The first one is the nature of Scripture is that it's a revelation. Verse 4, and I've already stressed this to some extent, that that we do have revealed is sufficient. God did not see fit. In fact, the whole book of Revelation... If we did not have it, certainly we would have an incomplete canon. But much of what we have in the book of Revelation, even without it, Scripture would still be sufficient if God had so chosen to just reveal what we have ending before we get to the book of Revelation. Because it deals with mainly prophetic themes. And in fact, much of the book of Revelation, you can learn most of the principles and most of the prophecies from the Old Testament. But God has been pleased to give us more and given us a whole book that kind of gathers together and gives a little more detail. What we have in Scripture, and you can't overemphasize this in, in stressing the importance of Scripture, it's sufficiency. Second Peter one three, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And in that context, it would include primarily Scripture. So verse 4. The Holy Spirit did not see fit to give us more information, so John is instructed not to write. The Scripture that God has revealed is sufficient. We may not understand every passage. We alluded to Genesis chapter 6. There's a lot of information there, but there's a lot that we don't understand there. That's why there's three viable viewpoints from equally qualified scholars that try to understand what's going on in the early verses there. Verse 6, let's look at it. Verse 5, And the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and, and the things in it and the earth and things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be no delay. The implication here, it's not as clear as perhaps these other two principles, but you can develop this from other passages, 2 Timothy three sixteen, obviously, and other passages that speak of inspiration. So this comes from the angel. We have revelation from the angel that comes out of heaven, that is delivering a message from God himself. And the principle of inspiration is, yes, Paul wrote uh, Galatians. Yes, he wrote Romans. Yes, he wrote Ephesians. But there was a divine author behind all of those books, as there was a divine author of all of Scripture and all of the Old Testament as well. So Scripture has a divine source. And in this case, we have uh, revelation from this angel himself. And that's one of the functions that we're going to see of angels, and this passage is one of the examples, God chose as instruments of revelation, sometimes angels. Now, if you study Exodus, there's not mention of angels, but there's other passages, book of Acts, I believe, and Acts 7, I think, that indicates that angels were a part of the, the revelation of God. Mount Sinai with... Uh, Not only the Ten Commandments, but the law. So angels are involved. And we've already seen this in uh, the book of Revelation where angels are instruments of revelation. They're used either to convey information or in this case, this angel has a little book. And and then in verse six, he's also speaking revelation and communicating uh, information. So, Scripture is a revelation. Scripture is sufficient. That's its nature. Scripture, by nature, is inspired. In other words, its source is God himself, which makes it authoritative. And all of the other issues related to inspiration, that means that it is perfect. There's no error, so it's inerrant. You could even add that if you wanted to. Inerrancy on your list there. That's an important concept to reinforce. Now, you all get this every Sunday. But if you're talking to an audience that is not familiar with this, these are points that you would want to stress. Another thing, through verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, verses 6 through 7, in fact, you could look at the whole beginning there it at least implies this incomprehensibility of God. God is the only one that has all knowledge. He's omniscient, and He does not reveal everything. In fact, I think you can... The doctrine of God's incomprehensibility tells us that we will never know everything about God. To be able to know everything about God would require omniscience, and since we are finite... We have limited ability to absorb and take in knowledge and information and wisdom. And here's an example in this book, or in this uh, chapter rather, where there are some things that God has not revealed. So it implies that there's a lot of other things, and particularly the nature of God. And in understanding who God is, He's been pleased to reveal many attributes And I believe that in the millennial kingdom, we'll probably see more attributes revealed. And maybe in in eternity, we may know more attributes. If not more, we will have a clearer and a better understanding of the attributes or perfections, I prefer to call them. The perfections that are revealed in Scripture will have a clearer picture. Right now, some of the perfections are hard to conceive of. For example, God's self existence. It's hard to conceive of a being like God who has no needs because we're the very opposite of that. We are needy people. We have all kinds of needs. Every breath, we need just every breath illustrates our needs. We need to feed ourselves consistently. We need interaction. We need relationship. We need all of these things. God has no need for any of that. It's hard to conceive of a personage like that. God had no need to create the universe. So everything around us, God did not make out of a need to satisfy anything in Him. He's totally self-sufficient, self-existent. He has no needs for anything. It's hard to conceive of that As part of the incomprehensibility of God, we don't know every aspect of the things even that He has revealed. We don't know all of the little ins and outs. That's why we have disagreements as to what's going on in the book of Revelation. We don't have all of the information to be conclusive in some things. That hints at there's an incomprehensibility about what God is all about and what God intends to reveal to us. So there are aspects about Scripture and particularly about God Himself that are incomprehensible. That doesn't mean they're not knowable. There's a difference between incomprehensibility and knowability. In fact, I believe the incomprehensibility of God, that doctrine teaches us that apart from God revealing Himself, we would know virtually nothing of who God is. We could not, in our finite thinking, in our own minds, come up with an accurate understanding of who God is. So, God being incomprehensible, that means that we do not have the capability, we do not have the resources, we do not have the mentality to be able to conceive of who God is. We can't discover Him through science, we can't discover Him through reasoning, The only way that we can understand the God of the Bible is through revelation, and that's the nature of Scripture, and that's why Scripture is important because it gives us that revelation. And even that that is revealed is only sufficient for what God considers what we need, and not only is it sufficient, but there is a lot of insight that God has been pleased to seal up as He does this revelation of the seven thunders. So you can stress not only the incomprehensibility of God, but the incomprehensibility of the revelation that God has given. So the difference between incomprehensibility and knowability is that we cannot understand and know God, and we cannot even understand Scripture apart from God's enablement and God's revelation. But incomprehensibility doesn't mean that we cannot know God because He's created us to be able to know and relate to Him. So we can know Him, but we want to distinguish how we come to that understanding. That's very important. Without Scripture, we would never have a clear idea as to who God is or what God expected or what God wanted out of us. He's chosen to reveal Himself through what He has created as well. But we would never come to the right conclusions concerning the creation without His special revelation, Scripture. That's what we mean by incomprehensibility. God is knowable because He's built us to know Him, but uh, we cannot come to that understanding apart from His revelation. That's the doctrine of incomprehensibility. And we have a hint of that right here in that God says, uh, seal up the book. I don't want you to know that, at least for now. Maybe later on. So when the commentators try to uh, figure out what's in there, they're kind of going against what God says here. It's sealed up. I read one commentator that said... What was it? Let me see what some of these are. Just to show you how weird people get. have got too many notes. Okay, here we go. Well, obviously the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> you can expect anything weird from them. They believe that Russell wrote seven volumes because he thought they were the seven thunders. Obviously, God gave him a little bit more, you know, than everybody else. But even within uh, the church, there was another one, let's see, that I wanted to mention you. Oh, okay, the papal bulls issued against Luther and the Reformation. (laughs) Those seven bulls are the seven thunders. Well, it kind of goes against this because we know what they contained. (laughs) And God said, seal it up. Anyway, uh, it's just a hint of what people do with some of these passages. There's the Greek word, by the way, for little book, translated little book. It's in contrast to the scroll that we saw in chapter 1. Same word group, except this is the diminutive, so that's why it's translated little book. (laughs) No. No, I think there's a distinction that's being made. In fact, the scroll was opened. The scroll is already open, so we already know the content of it. It doesn't refer too much about the content of the little book, but specifically these thunders are to be sealed up. So the little book focuses first on an angel, this strong angel, one through three. Next, if you haven't noticed already in my uh, exegetical outline, I tend to alliterate just for memory and trying to bring things together. So I'm using A's there. So we have an angel, and now we had the announcement. When you come up with an exegetical outline, in fact, the first exegetical outline that I produce never is alliterated. It's usually after I'm preparing it to teach it in a like a church setting, then I kind of give it a little bit more thought to give people kind of a some more handles to be able to try to either remember or to be able to... See what's the content there So it's not a necessary thing It's just something that I try to do And and usually after I've taught the book several times Then I end up with a more refined exegetical outline As you produce an exegetical outline It'll be quite a bit more rough Than what you will do ten years from now When you've taught the book five times Not just the book of Revelation But others, (laughs) hopefully So we have an announcement We looked at that And now, verses 8 through 11, we're going to have assimilation. So you can add that to your notes. Uh, Those three parts are not in your outline sheet. Verse 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again, speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Now, this book, he hasn't revealed he hasn't told us what's contained in there but now john has given instruction as to what he's to do with this book and he's going to use or at least the angel is going to use a hebrew idiom and you see this in ezekiel and i think other passages in the old testament where the prophet is told to eat the book and john probably literally did it i'm not (laughs) i don't know but it was, it was a Hebrew idiom. It has the idea of assimilate it. In other words, take it in. Uh, you and I should be eating our Bibles. And by that we mean we should be meditating on it, taking it in, making it a part of us. The image is literally taking it and putting it inside of us by eating it, chewing on it. This is what we should do. So John is told to assimilate it in verses 8 through 11. And the verse which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. Remember, Ezekiel had a similar experience. In fact, the allusion would take you back to some of those passages in the Old Testament. Well, Scripture is a revelation. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is inspired and has its source in God. Scripture is incomprehensible in that we cannot understand it. We cannot fully grasp uh, the full implications without the enabling work of the Holy Spirit and certainly God himself, without his revelation. And fifthly, there's an effectiveness about Scripture. It's going to have an impact on us. This is illustrated in John's taking in of the book. He's to eat it. And when we eat it, it's going to have different effects upon us. You can add some scriptures here and speak of how sometimes the Word is an encouragement to us. Sometimes the Word is a comfort to us. Sometimes the Word is convicting and slaps us across the face. But the Word will be effective as we take it in and assimilate it. Sometimes the Word will knock us to our knees Sometimes the word will correct us. It will say, oh, okay, I didn't even know I was doing that, but I need to take a different approach here or I need to treat people better or whatever the case may be. So it's always correcting. It's always doing something. It's convicting or encouraging or doing something. It is always effective. And in this case, it's going to have two effects, two uh, contrasting effects. The angel tells John that it's going to be bitter in his stomach, but it's also going to be sweet as honey. Uh, That's reinforced again in verse 10. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. In other words, he assimilated it, maybe even literally eating it. The idea is not nourishment here. The idea is assimilation in such a way that now it's becoming a part of me. If you wanted to, this might be an illustration of memorizing Scripture or meditating on it to the point that you, if not fully memorize, but at least you understand and part of those principles are now part of your, not only your mental understanding, but have affected you in terms of application. So he takes a little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And when I ate it, my stomach was made bitter. So it had its effect. That was the intended effect of the eating of the book. There's a sixth application that we can draw in relation to Scripture, verse 11. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So there's purpose. And what's probably implied in verse 11, we're not told what the content of that is, but verse 11 probably hints that this book has a purpose. Otherwise, I don't know why we have this chapter here because it doesn't tell us what's in there. So it may be a hint of what is yet to come. And some commentators believe that this book contains some of the other judgments like the seventh seal scroll. When it was opened, it revealed judgments. And this one perhaps is an expansion of more judgments or more dealings, at least, as the text says, concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So we're dealing with people of the world, the external world, not just the nation of Israel. So there's no other little reference back to this little book, and probably the best view is that what this book contains is probably the rest of what John is going to be revealed as he sees other visions as well, similar to what we saw in that other scroll. The only thing that is sealed up are the seven thunders. He eats the book and then he's going to take from the effectiveness of it. Some of it is bitter, and we've seen judgments are not pleasant. Judgments are bitter. So we'll probably have judgments. Some of it is sweet. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he ends all evil. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when He marries His bride, is joined to the bride. We'll see that in chapter 19. That's sweet. The second coming of the Lord when it's going to give us the establishment of the kingdom. That is sweet news. That is a blessing because we are participating. We will participate with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. So there's bitter aspects, probably the emphasis on judgment. And there's sweet aspects or pleasant aspects that pertain to the things that will bring us blessing and joy and those aspects are yet to be revealed so uh, probably the best view as to what's contained in the book is beginning chapter 11 (laughs) start reading chapter 11 the rest of the book Does that make sense otherwise this is kind of a confusing chapter because it doesn't tell us much and it probably hints at just keep waiting and we'll reveal some more so that's chapter 10 Three parts chapter 10, we have an emphasis on an angel and his description. That angel makes some announcements pertaining to the little book and pertaining to other revelation. John is told part of the announcement is to eat the book or assimilate it. So verses 8 through 11 of chapter 10 is the assimilation. Also part of the interlude is the first 14 verses of chapter 11 which focus on these two witnesses. So let's take a look at chapter 11, and we'll introduce the chapter, take a break, and then come back and try to complete the chapter. There's a lot of things in chapter 11 that introduce questions as to what's going on and what the meaning is, so there's all kinds of views again. And by the way, I'm sparing you almost every verse. There's different views on what's going on in virtually every verse in the book of Revelation if you read the commentaries. You'll get a feel for that as you read even conservative, good scholars. You'll see that even they will differ on some different points that are not as clear. There's a consistent pattern, though, in almost all of the commentators that don't take the same viewpoint that we take. A conservative, premillennial, pre-tribulational approach to the book of Revelation. A literal approach. Every one of them take a symbolic approach in one way or another. This is pretty consistent. They'll either see symbols in terms of the numbers or they'll see symbols in terms of the specifics, in terms of the judgments. They'll spiritualize them. I'll give you some of the reasons already. They're so horrific that it's hard to conceive of them. So people say, well, it's a symbol of this because it's easier to accept. There's just the overtly allegorical approach that just adds symbols to virtually everything in the book. Not so symbolic, more specific is these two witnesses are a symbol of Israel itself. In other words, the whole nation symbolized as these two olive trees and... Lamp stands. I think that's not supported by the, the text if you take a literal approach. Most commentators take this view, that it's symbolic of the church. In fact, most commentators put the church in chapters 4 through 18. So a lot of what's in those chapters, most of the commentators, and I'm, I'm talking about those outside of what we would consider conservative literalists, premillennialists, see the church. Even some premillennialists, however, that are somewhat conservative, still see the church in chapters 4 through 8. So they would see the two witnesses as symbolic of, of the church. The literal, or the approach that we're taking, I see them as two forerunners, much like the forerunner of the Messiah in the first coming. We had an individual that preceded Christ to prepare the way. His name is obviously John the Baptist, okay? And in fact, there's an illusion or not an illusion but there's some passages that tie John the Baptist with a prophet that is prophesied to return on the occasion of the coming of Messiah. Jesus himself speaks of John the Baptist as had the nation received him as Savior, he would have been Elijah. And Malachi predicts that Elijah will come at the coming of Messiah. I don't know how all that works out. I've exegeted that passage and have some ideas there. I don't want to get into that. But basically, there's a tie or a relationship with John the Baptist and at least Elijah. And on that transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, Elijah and Moses do appear. And the disciples recognize them and see them. And they make some comments in uh, Matthew chapter 17. So there are two personages right there at the transfiguration that are associated with the coming of Messiah. And possibly, if you take a literal approach, at least they're the forerunners, if not specifically Moses and Elijah. Okay. One way of applying this, here's another application. So this slide is going to kind of represent some applications that you can draw. And I think all of you know the distinction between interpretation and application. Application is a little bit more flexible in terms of drawing applications. In fact, we should be consistently applying Scripture. In other words, taking the truths of Scripture, relating them to us in some way. But you start by understanding a clear interpretation of the passage that sometimes can vary a little bit from the application of the passage. The application is personal. How that truth, how that historical incident, how that teaching of Scripture, that doctrine now is translated and can have an impact on me. See the difference there? This is basic hermeneutics. So when I give you some applications here, they're a little bit more flexible in terms of the actual teaching of the text or the doctrine of the text. So we'll look at the text and then begin to draw the applications. So let's begin by reading verse 1 in chapter 11. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now it's not totally clear where this scene takes place, and it's also interesting that it doesn't start with and I saw," but he instead hears instructions here that was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and what we have here is like a measuring stick, which would have been probably longer than a yard stick, kind of like a yardstick that John is given, and he is instructed to measure. Now, there's examples in the Old Testament where this imagery is used in the context of measuring, but the idea behind it or the imagery conveys more than just simply, okay, getting dimensions. It has the idea of making some evaluation, some assessment, if you will. So John is giving given this measuring rod more than likely to make some assessments concerning the temple. The vision is probably of an earthly temple, and the context seems to indicate perhaps an earthly temple, which tells us that during this period of time, there's going to be a reconstructed temple. There's no temple right now. There was no temple on Temple Mount, and if we understand prophecy literally, then it's passages like this and other passages. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse speaks of a temple. In fact, he speaks of Antichrist in the temple. So there will be a temple. And more than likely that temple will be built during the seven year period. Now, the last time I was in Israel, I had conversations with uh, the guide that was showing us different sites. And, and I've done other reading and apparently the Jews have everything already in place. And in a matter of weeks, they could reconstruct a temple on Temple Mount. Obviously, politically, they can't do that. <laughs> start World War III, start Armageddon, which we'll talk about. So I think God is going to do something supernatural. And it may have something to do with the covenant that uh, the Antichrist signs with Israel. It may even happen. In fact, there's some Christians that believe that because of uh, terrorist activity that that God's going to redirect a scud missile and it's going to knock out the mosque that now occupies probably the site of the tribulation temple. At any rate, uh, that's all speculation. This is one of the passages that seem to indicate that there's a the temple there, and John is to make an assessment here or measure it. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it Now, it's not clear what altar is in view here. There were two. We've been mentioning that all along. But notice those who worship in it. So that's probably the main assessment to make. What's the spiritual condition of these people? But, verse 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There's a mention there. Of a time frame, a couple of things to note there. The word for temple, there are two words in uh, in the Greek text in the New Testament that are used for temple. One word refers to the temple complex, and if you've seen, I should probably show a photograph of Temple Mount right now, or a photograph of uh, reconstruction of the temple. But the first century temple, as well as the Solomonic temple. It was a large complex with a building somewhat, well, probably in the middle. And in the building were the uh, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. One of the words in Greek, naas, is a reference to that part of not only the temple building, but the whole complex. The other word refers to the outlaying... Structure, uh, overall uh, complex is the word I'm searching for. So the word here is na'as. It's the word of the inner... And in fact, most of the references in the book of Revelation are to the holy of holies. Okay? So in verse 11, measuring the temple. But now we have a reference to the court outside. So it, this is the temple complex, which is outside the na'as. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. In other words, Gentiles. In fact, in Greek, the word "nations" (ethne) sometimes is translated "nations," like here, and sometimes it's translated uh, "Gentiles." Same word, context sometimes dictates one or the other. So he's making an an, an assessment. A couple of applications we can draw right off the bat. For God's servants, and if you're a believer, you are a servant of God. It's not a matter of becoming a servant of God. When you were saved and all believers were saved, I believe we were saved into servanthood. The issue is not whether or not we are servants. The issue is whether or not we are faithful. I believe we have all been commissioned by being given all the equipment, everything that we need. You guys are talking about spiritual gifts now. That's part of what God has equipped you to serve Him. You have a divine commission, not just these two witnesses that we will see. In this case, uh, John is commissioned to do a service. He's commissioned to make an assessment. We're going to see that these two witnesses have their own commission to accomplish things that God wants them to accomplish. You can be assured if you know Jesus Christ, God has commissioned you to particular tasks. Ephesians 2 tells us that he is prepared before the foundations of the world. So God had in mind before we were individually saved, he already envisioned a ministry for us. So there's some applications. And, and by the way, when you come to applications, you can come up with a variety of applications. This isn't the only application you can draw from these passages. This is just an example of how you can apply it. One of the points I would make is that we have a divine commission. God has sent us out in the world to have an impact upon it. God has set us in a church body to have an impact amongst those that also know the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 1 emphasizes this commission. So when John is given this measuring rod, he is to utilize it in the way that God intends. Secondly, he's given ability and tools, everything that he needs to accomplish what God has called him to do. He has the ability to make assessments, and we have to do the same thing. God has given us wisdom, and he's given us the word To be able to discern and to understand how can I best utilize the gifts that God has given me. And we have instruction. John is given instruction and told specifically, leave out this part. Do this. So we have in the passage these two witnesses, which we'll look at in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. So verses 1 and 2 is the measuring, which John is to accomplish. And now we have a ministry in verses 3 through 6. It'll be described. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Notice we have another time frame. Now, I didn't comment the one in verse 2. I uh, kind of skipped over that. So let's first of all backtrack and look at verse 2. When it talks about measuring the court that is given over to the nations, the reference, the time frame is that the nations will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. How long is that in years? Very good. You're the math teacher, right? <laughs> Three and a half years. Here's one, here's one of the passages. We're going to see several other references. In fact, it's Little uh, unusual that we have two of them right back to back here. We have the forty-two months. Sometimes this period of time is measured in months. Sometimes it's measured in a little bit more cryptic description that comes out of Daniel. It speaks of times, time, half a time. In other words, times plural, probably two. Time, singular, add that. You have three. And half a time, three and a half. That comes out of Daniel. Come up to some passages like that later on. In verse 4, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Where's the mathematician? You got a calculator there? 42 months. months. All right, very good. Very good. Which already we have calculated to be three and a half years. Thank you. (laughs) So, Another reference, the question is, which, remember in our chronology, we have two three-and-a-half-year periods in that seven-year block. Let me ask you all, what do you think might be uh, the best suggestion in terms of which ones? What about the 42 months? What do you think that's a reference to? It's not real clear. We don't have a lot of exegetical information here. In fact, what's going to drive your conclusion is, are things outside of this passage and how they best fit in in terms of some of the other things in, in the book of Revelation. But it's okay to take a stab at it right now for those of you that want to guess. <laughs> 42 months, do you think it's the same time? First of all, let me ask you, Does it, do you think it's the first time frame as the uh, 1260 days? Or do you think they're different? And if you think they're different, which is which? First of all, do you think they're the same time frame? You can guess. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're going to trod the temple. In other words, they're going to overrun the temple. In fact, you're, you're thinking, okay, you're thinking based on the other passages in the book or other prophetic scriptures lead you to conclude that possibly the second half because of other scriptures, right? No, the 42, uh, the 42 months, the trotting of the Gentiles of the temple, the outer courts of the temple. Uh, Lindsay's coming to the conclusion that it's the last half. Anyone want to debate (laughs) her? Present a case for the first half? Well, I would agree with Lindsay in that it, it seems that most of the Scriptures, remember there's a significant event that takes place in the middle. And it appears that up to that point, Israel has been sacrificing and Israel has had opportunity and access to not only the temple, but the Holy of Holies. And then all of a sudden, Antichrist goes into the temple and sets himself up. Now, we haven't got to some of those passages yet. So that's why I'm telling you we're just guessing right now, or you all are guessing. I've done a little bit more study. (laughs) It seems to me that these other passages that we'll look at later on, and other passages in the Old Testament, and some things that Jesus said, at that midpoint, Daniel very specifically in the middle, Daniel's the one that pinpoints the time frame, Jesus alludes to the time frame. He speaks of the abomination that Daniel spoke of. Second Thessalonians 2 seems to indicate what that is. That abomination is he sets himself up in the temple and says, I am God, which is an abomination for anyone to blaspheme God by claiming God in the temple and possibly in the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine that? And what a Jew would think? A Gentile going into the Holy of Holies and claiming to be God. That's an abomination. And it appears that from then on, he is now controlling the temple, and the uh, three and a half years is probably the second half. All right? What about verse 3? I will grant authority to my witnesses, my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. First, do you think it's the same period of time? By the way, the commentators are uh, divided on this. So, either guess, you'll have commentators that'll say, yeah, 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 that's it. Oh, did I? Okay. Yeah, I did tell you. Distinguishing. That's one little bit of exegetical data that helps you to see that maybe there's a distinction between the two. Same amount of time, but distinguished. And there are some commentators that incline to take the numeric the number of days as to always the first three and a half and the uh, months to always the second half. I'm not sure that that can... I think that's one piece of data that people can use as well. Yeah, and I did tell you that I I would favor the first half. It just makes logical sense that you'd have the uh, witnesses prophesying. And here it gives us the time frame and it tells us that if they're prophesying three and a half years, then they're prophesying at the very beginning. In other words... In other words, from the beginning to the end of the three and a half years. So I would see them at the first half, and it makes sense to me that that would be the best time frame because the forerunner comes early. The first thing that we have in the Gospels is, well, we have the genealogy of Christ in Matthew's account, but then we have John the Baptist before Christ begins to minister, before the Messiah ministers in the Gospels. So it makes sense that the forerunners, if in fact these two witnesses are forerunners, that they would come at the beginning of the tribulation. So I distinguish the, the two time frames, one the last half and the second one the first half. Does that make sense? And like I said, the the commentators are divided both ways in terms of the time frame. I guess the passage in Matthew about the second half and hide and clean the mountains. Right, exactly. Yes, Matthew 24. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they fit there. And it seems that they are fleeing out of Jerusalem, so they're no longer having access to the temple. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of little pieces elsewhere that help us, at least gives us data to base a conclusion like that. Okay? So that's the conclusion I've come to in terms of when do these take place. It just makes more sense that we would have prophetic word at the beginning. This is Jewish. Remember, this is Jewish eschatology. So you're going to have prophets. You're going to have all the, the elements of the Old Testament. You're going to have prophets preceding, calling the nation to repent. And we don't have the content of what they do, but it's possible that they're reviewing the covenants and how Israel, the reason Israel is suffering tribulation or will suffer tribulation... They may remind them of the passages in Deuteronomy, the passages in Isaiah, the passages in Jeremiah. The passages speak of this great period of tribulation, but repent and be saved to escape the ultimate persecution or the ultimate suffering, the second death. And I already mentioned that uh, the the first fruits, and they're called that, are 144,000 that we had in that first interlude in the the interlude pertaining to chapter 7. So it makes sense that they prophesy, and the product or the uh, fruit of that prophesying are the 144,000, and possibly other Jews as well. But the 144,000 in chapter 7 seem to have a special and particular ministry. Verse 9 hints at the possibility that they are evangelists, Because in verse 9, after we are told of the 144,000, we have a great multitude. Uh, That multitude is in heaven, indicating that they're dead. They died. But it also tells us where they came. In fact, very specifically in chapter 7, it says these are the ones that came out of the tribulation. In fact, I think great is used there. Mega. In uh, chapter 7, I have to go back to the verse to remind myself. So there's specifically that. That multitude in verse 9 of chapter 7 is specifically identified. In fact, does somebody have, I think it's verse 14. Do you have that? Somebody read that. 7.14, I think. Is that it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The question is, who are those that are of this great multitude in verse 7? They came out of the great tribulation. They washed the robes. In other words, they are redeemed. They're clean. They're cleansed. That's who they are. So the product of the 144,000 are people that die. We've already said that most of the believers will die during this period of time. They are kind of the second generation of Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers during this period of time. That multitude are from all of the nations. So it appears that the 144,000 are commissioned to go out into the world. And maybe they don't even go out because there's Jews spread out all over the world and when the uh, they're already placed in different cultures, I'm sure there's Jews. Well, there are Jews in Egypt, and there's Jews all over the world. So when this time comes, all it's going to take are prophetic words to not only call these people to recognize Messiah, and in recognizing Messiah, they're going to immediately put together a lot of Old Testament passages. And God is commissioning the 144,000 to follow through on that. So the two witnesses seem to kick it off. That's what makes most sense to me. So authority is given. So we have a particular commission with full authority, full capability, full equipping to fulfill what God has called these witnesses. This slide, who are the two witnesses? I'm not sure I'm going to have enough time to uh, identify them, giving you some of the views. Again, this is another passage where there's a variety of views, and I think it's important that we uh, clarify that. Before we look at that, let me give you some other scriptures that seem to indicate that God continually uses prophets, and he reminds the children of Israel of the ministry of prophets that he continually sends. And I think these are his ultimate prophets. And ultimately, I think, in the latter days or the last days, these are the prophets that are going to be involved. Uh, Just jot these down. I've got them written. You don't need to look them up. I'll just read them to you. Second Kings 17.13. So in the Kings, it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets, "...and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you through my servant the prophets." God, particularly in the kingdom era, was sending prophets, and here it refers to all my prophets... And one of the primary functions is to call the nation to repentance. And during the tribulation, Israel is going to be unconverted. Israel, they're going to be unbelieving. And God is going to awaken them through prophets. These two individuals are probably prophets. And we'll expand upon that after the break. Second Chronicles is another passage uh, thirty six in fifteen and 16, the Lord, the God of your fathers, sent word to them that's Israel again and again. and we have more prophets in the Old Testament than the twelve minor prophets and uh, the major prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God sent them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word. That's Israel's history. Despised his word, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Now, we're at the end of history in the book of Revelation, and there's no remedy for sin apart from Jesus Christ. The prophets are going to arouse the consciences of the children of Israel and reiterate that there's no other way than the Messiah that already came. Israel is going to put it together. First, the 144,000 during this period of time. But the stress in this passage is God sends his prophets again and again, and he's not going to give up until Israel does, in fact, repent. And the book of Revelation, the optimistic part, is that that's the time frame when Israel, all Israel shall be saved, as Paul says in Romans 11. Jeremiah also warns, 44, 4 through 6, Yet I sent you all, my servants, the prophets, again and again, emphasizing this. So God is not done with the prophets saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness so as not to burn sacrifices to their gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and burned in the cities, cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. So they have become a ruin and a desolation as it is to this day. In history, God sent prophets. The nation did not respond. God brought captivity and exile. It happened again when Messiah came. Israel did not accept their Messiah. God brought judgment again, 70 A.D. All of these anticipate the coming of prophets in the future. This time, Israel will respond. This time, Messiah will arrive This time, Messiah will establish the millennial kingdom. Let's look at another passage since we have a little bit of time here. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 4. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. uh, And then skipping down to verse 3. Saying from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you again and again. God continually uses prophets. He has not done yet. There are still future prophets. That's what we're talking about in the book of Revelation. But you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants and prophets again and again. So it's reiterated. But you have not listened or inclined your ear to hear. Yet... God always, even in exile, God always preserved a remnant. And during the tribulation, not every Jew will respond, but even during the tribulation, the majority will respond such that all of Israel shall be saved, but it'll still be considered a remnant. There's a lot of passages that indicate remnants are saved. Paul, in Romans 9.27, Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, in other words, there's a multitude of Israelites, it is the remnant that will be saved. Paul is predicting into the future. Paul is talking about the tribulation. So not everyone that is Jewish will be saved, but enough that he can say in chapter 11 that all of Israel shall be saved. So let's take a break and we'll come back and complete chapter 11.